1: Hello, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast interview. My guest today is Professor Peter Brand. Peter Brand is Professor of Egyptology at the University of Memphis in Tennessee in the United States. His specialty is the early Ramessid period, the reigns of Seti I, Ramesses II, and the political and cultural legacies of this important phase. Most notably, his first book, The Monuments of Seti I, examined the reign of this pharaoh from the perspective of his architectural legacy, and how that reflects his political, religious, and cultural ideals. More recently, his newest book, Ramesses II, Egypt's Ultimate Pharaoh, explores the legacy of Seti I and the spectacular reign of his son, often called Ramesses the Great. Professor Brand sat down with me in April of 2023 to continue our discussions on the early Ramessid period and its fascinating history. Once again, it is my pleasure to introduce Peter Brand. Okay, so Professor Brand, welcome back for your second discussion with the History of Egypt podcast.
2: It's good to be back.
1: How you. are you today?
2: Doing very well.
1: Very I'm good. Excited about my new book. Yes, Ramesses, the Ultimate Pharaoh is now available. You must be very relieved to have it out there on the shelves.
2: Yes, it's a long time coming, and I'm very excited to have everybody be able to see it now. How long
1: was how, how long was the project for this particular book?
2: Well, it, it, I've been working on it really for um, uh, ten years, and but the uh, the the original idea goes back um, more than twenty. Mm. Uh, shortly after I finished my uh, doctoral uh, dissertation on Seti the first and published uh, my first book, which was a very scholarly book on Seti, I had the idea I wanted to do more with Ramses. And I also wanted to, um, uh, you know, I wanted to do a more accessible book, that, you know, not just Egyptologists or scholars. And so that was the original idea. And I did a lot of various research projects related to different aspects of the king's reign, Mm -hmm. the royal family, the foreign relations. So drawing all these threads together over the course of really 20 years, and then Writing up this uh, this book, and you know, people ask, "Well, how long did it take you to write it?" And I said, (laughs) "Well, it took me about two years to write the book, but then it took me another eight to perfect it to where people would want to actually read it." (laughs) That's excellent. So, essentially, from
1: from the start of your academic, well, your postgraduate academic career, you have just been up to your eyeballs in the early Ramesside rulers and their accomplishments. I guess the obvious question would would be, are you sick of them yet? But the more pertinent question would be, if you had to sort of summarize, you know, what what it really attracts you to these figures in terms of just personal interest and in research, how would you how would you summarize that that interest?
2: Well, the short answer to am I sick of them uh, is no.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I do find uh, the period and 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 these kings. Uh, the monuments to be just endlessly fascinating. Mm. I guess I do have a kind of personality that, when I become interested uh, interested in something, I like to just dive very deeply into it. Mm. Uh, but uh, as I say, I, you know, I was captivated ever since childhood with mm. these grand monuments, uh, you know, the hieroglyphic inscriptions, etc., cetera. But I remember when I was a child looking at these old National Geographic magazines that my dad had collected from the 60s about the rescue of the temples of Abu Simbel. Uh, There was also this National Geographic documentary, and this was long before the cable news, uh, cable TV documentaries, but it was about uh, Egypt and it had a theme about Ramses II and the Temple of Seti at Bidos and the epigraphic survey. And I knew that's what I wanted to study and that's what I I wanted to uh, do is record the inscriptions and study Ramses and Seti. And, and I, w- I watched this again recently. It was called Egypt Quest for Eternity. And they talked about Abu Simbel, the Peace Treaty, and SETI's Temple of Dibidus, and the Epigraphic Survey. And this show, it like predicted my career. Uh, <laughs> even my mentor, Bill Murnane, uh, from, uh, from the University of Memphis, but he was then at the uh, Chicago House. He he was like a cameo, but everything in that show is like that's what I what I became, and it was it was really quite something.
1: Mm. So, Egypt Quest for Eternity by National Geographic was the documentary.
2: Yeah, it was from I think the early '80s, Mm. and it it was again it was what inspired me.
1: Mm. Okay, Uh, well, for those interested, uh, the documentary seems to be available on YouTube in its full form. Uh, So, if you're interested in what inspired Dr. Brandon his early Early beginnings that is available on YouTube. So I would like to quickly touch on uh, Bill Murnane. Um, He was obviously a mentor and a very you know close close figure in your life up until his his passing. But William Murnane is also very noteworthy in the Ramessid field for his very important study of Seti I's war reliefs at Karnak and reconstructing some of the political and historical um, events surrounding those. We're going to touch on the wars of Seti I a bit later in the interview, but I'd just like to sort of briefly, if you don't mind uh, reminiscing, you know, how did how how involved were you in those sort of uh, studies and discussions with Bill? You know, what was your relationship with him and how much did that really put you on this path?
2: Well, you know, I, I became uh, fascinated uh, by this uh, the art and, and science of epigraphy. Again going back to that National Geographic thing I just remember seeing you know these giant folio books with these exact uh, drawings of the hieroglyphic inscriptions and mm. elaborate scenes and then how they made these precise drawings of all the scenes and hieroglyphic texts and I knew that's what I wanted and of course when I came to the University of Memphis and Bill Merneen had this project to work in the Great Hypostyle Hall at Karnak it was just like a dream came true, and I finally was able to come out with him in the early nineties. I think ninety four was my first season to work there. It was literally my dream come true, hmm. and it, it. He also he he trained me in in this this very fine art of how to interpret these inscriptions, how to hmm. uh, copy them, and he, he, there's a there's a there's a subtlety to it. How to discern very fine details and and Mm. the subtleties of reading. Sometimes it's almost reading between the lines. Often you see these beautiful inscriptions on a tomb or a temple wall that are very well preserved, but all too often the inscriptions are badly damaged, and you have to figure out what is in the missing bits. Mm. And especially in this time period, and and it's very common in the Hypostyle hall, you know because the Egyptians wrote their history on the monuments when they rewrote history they rewrote the monuments mm-hmm. or sometimes for other reasons they altered inscriptions and you can see the evidence of a second hand as they came back and re-carved inscriptions mm-hmm. and a major piece of my dissertation work on SETI was his, his, his tendency to actually rework his own inscriptions for various reasons Not out of a a desire to suppress his own work, but just to sort of uh, re-edit his inscriptions and uh, learning how to do this and how to spot these modifications and then discover the reason for why he was doing it. Uh, Because there were various reasons why he did this sometimes to his own work sometimes to the work of other pharaohs and we're going to be talking about this with his restoration inscriptions um but this it's almost like forensic work except instead mm. of studying, studying a crime scene or mm. uh, you're studying an ancient monument but it's it, it's a kind of detective work i suppose
1: mm, absolutely i i think there's a there's a saying that every detective has a crime that they were never able to solve is there one that keeps you up at night with its intangibility?
0: Um,
2: I'm, I can't think of it like a specific example. But yes, there are things that are impossible to know.
0: Mm.
2: Uh, there, it, to me, it's what are missing. Oh, I can, here's, here's an example, uh, a couple of examples. One of them that is very unlikely we will ever know. And then another one that it's hiding in plain sight that I would dearly love to know, but I'll probably never see it in my lifetime. Mm. This is the Sadi battle scene. Mm. On the uh, on the north face of the Hypostel Hall, arranged on three levels, which we call registers, on the top level of the Sadi battle scene, which is mostly gone, on the west side of the battle scenes, we have the, the battle that shows Sadi assaulting Kadesh. Mm. But on the east side, The top register of scenes is completely gone. Mm. It may have shown some of SETI's campaigns in Canaan and Lebanon. It may have shown one of his wars in Nubia. Who knows what it's shown, but not a single block Mm. that can be identified with one of his wars there has survived. They've completely disappeared. And Mm. unless they turn up somewhere, we'll never know what those wars were about. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that they are likely ever to turn up,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: certainly not most of them. So that, that is a mystery that is almost certainly never to be solved. Now, on the the, uh, the Western side, um, the, the way the hyposteal North Wall goes, the, the reliefs sort of turn around a corner. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of scenes that are preserved on the Western side that are there. In fact, they're probably perfectly intact. And probably still even covered with some of the original paint. But unfortunately, they're covered by a later wall that was built <laughs> in the uh, in the Libyan period, the the Bubasti period. It's mm. part of the outer courtyard of of the karnak temple. And unless you could convince the Egyptian authorities that you were going to dismantle part of this wall, which is not very likely that you could yeah. actually do that. And then it would cost thousands and thousands of dollars that were very unlikely that we will ever be able to see what's under that wall. So it literally is hiding in plain sight.
0: Mm.
2: So those are those are mysteries that will never be solved or are unlikely to be solved. I would dearly like to know what is there, mm. uh, but I, I probably will never be able to see them. Very good. That's a very, very
1: comprehensive answer. I like that information about the libyan libyan period wall that is that must be frustrating every time you go to karnak you just you see that wall and you think i know you're there just let me in <laughs> yeah. understandable okay so seti i is often renowned as one of the sort of great builder pharaohs and this begins despite his surprisingly short reign you know maybe somewhere between 12 to 14 15 years he accomplishes quite significant things in terms of architecture and art. But when he first comes to power, when he inherits authority from Ramesses I, he does begin a small-scale project of what you have termed secondary restoration work at various sites uh, throughout Egypt, most notably karnak and Luxor. so just very just very briefly, what are cities? what is a secondary restoration? What does that mean?
2: Yeah. I just, I'm sorry, I have to take issue with one thing. Okay. I, I think that his his reign lasted for more along the lines of about 10 or 11 years. But okay. we can, if you want to talk about we can talk about that later. <laughs> sure. His program of restorations. Now, we know that in the aftermath of the Amarna period, that beginning with Tutankhamun, that when the images of the gods and the names of the gods, especially Amun, uh, Mut and Khonsu that were defaced on the walls of temples, especially in Thebes, mm. had been, you know, defaced uh, by Akhenaten uh, at the orders of Akhenaten. the these uh, post amarna pharaohs and Seti I had piously restored them, and especially with uh, uh, Seti I, it was quite obvious that he had done a lot of this because he often inscribed in the margins of the uh, scenes that he restored, uh, uh, what we call a restoration inscription, which is a brief formulaic text there with slight variations, basically says a restoration of monuments which Seti I made for his father, Amun-Reid, with various little minor, uh, the, the the phrase that is used in Egyptian is Samawi Menu, which means restoration of monuments. Mm. Uh, and uh, when uh, other kings like Heb and Tutankhamun, and in one case, I occasionally used these Samawi Menu or restoration labels, um, but said he used them on a wide scale. And it was so common with Seti that one would imagine if you took it at face value that many of these monuments had lain lay in, in, in a, a decrepit state uh, with the icons of the gods completely unrestored, mm-hmm. uh, just a mass of chisel marks, uh, you know, as gaping wounds on the facades of the temple for as much as 25 or 30 years from the death of Akhenaten till the, the reign of Seti I. But already in a couple of instances, uh, other scholars, including Ray Johnson of the Epigraphic Survey and uh, Susan Bikel, uh, who was working, uh, a, a Swiss scholar was working in the mortuary temple of Amenhotep III, had noticed that there was evidence that occasionally, um, when they looked at some of Seti's restorations, there seemed to be evidence that uh, the images of the gods that had been re, uh, restored by Seti that the, the there was evidence uh, that they were recarved, that they may have been restored earlier, and then Seti sort of re-restored them mm. by making minor adjustments to the proportions of the the restored images of the God, and then slapping on uh, a, a restoration label, uh, one of these Samawi menu texts, where the earlier kings had never added one. Mm. Uh, and and so this, this was interesting. And when I started looking at SETI's uh, restoration inscriptions uh, and looking at these restored icons systematically, then cases of these modified uh, restored icons where all these telltale extra lines. And what you see when you look at them is uh, you you look along the the outlines of the figures of the gods, and certain things, especially along the arms and legs. Or with the god Amun along the, the lines of the tall feathers on his headdress, you see these extra double lines mm. where, again, they haven't completely wholesale changed everything, but they've sort of modified the proportions. Uh, even with Amun's uh, tall plumes, sometimes they they adjust the angle of the plumes or make them slightly taller, this kind of thing. And mm. they're really just sort of fiddling around with the proportions. They're not completely wholesale recarving anything. It's mm. almost like he's doing a little bit of modification to justify that, oh, yeah, I've, I've re-restored them. So now I can justify the fact that I'm now slapping on a restoration label to say that I've done this restoration. Mm. Um, there, there were a couple of cases where I found this before, um, uh, before uh, uh, Seti. Mm. In, the, in the sixth pylon at Karnak there was a case where Horemheb had, had modified uh, images of the gods that had been restored by Tutankhamun. Mm. And in fact, uh, there it was interesting because Tutankhamun had restored these this one image in particular of the god Amun and he had left a restoration inscription, the same type, Samawi Menu, restoration of monuments made by Tutankhamun. And the image of Amun was uh, was standing next to an image originally of Tutmosis the Third, and the Tutmosa was still in his original condition. Only Amun had been defaced, but but uh, but the, the when Tut restored the image of Amun, he was kind of small. Mm. Uh, he was sort of shorter than he should have been. And when Horem had re-restored him, he actually made Amun taller, actually <laughs> the right height. Mm. Uh, uh, next to uh, the king, uh, and then, and you could actually see this, because when you looked at the image of the final Amun of Horemheb, you could see the head and shoulders of Tut's Amun embedded in the chest <laughs> of, of Horemheb's Amun. And then when you looked at the cartouche in Tut's restoration inscription, you could tell that the name of Horemheb had been added later. And and so, this kind of thing was a phenomenon. There was also one where the same thing seems to have happened in a case of I at at Luxor Temple, where I had re restored some of Tutankhamun's amuns in a gateway at at Luxor Temple. So, it was an original thing that SETI had first done, but SETI sort of took the ball and ran with it (laughs) and did this on a large scale throughout Karnak, Luxor, and probably other temples.
0: Okay.
1: When they did this, when they made these changes, would they have covered the original uh, carving, you know, with plaster and paint? Would they have been invisible once the work was completed?
2: Yes, um, because um, sometimes, and again, I don't know how much it was, how much plaster was really Mm. necessary in some cases, because some of these modifications were so minor, Mm. it really was kind of touching up. But I did notice, in particular, there was a case on the eighth pylon at Karnak, where, and especially since the images there were carved in sunk relief, and I looked at these uh, these sunk relief images, and of course because sunk relief has these sort of deep troughs, mm. once you start messing with the uh, the proportions of those, you have to cover the trough of the <laughs> of the other outline. And there, there was quite a bit, there were places where the, the plaster fell away and you saw these parallel trough lines, mm. uh, but there were other places where the plaster was still in, filling in the earlier version. Now, one of the other things that was useful at the eighth pylon that sort of was was the ultimate smoking gun, because people could argue that, well, maybe what you're seeing in these earlier lines is actually not evidence that that the, there was an earlier restoration. Maybe those are just left over from the original Priyamarna inscription mm. of the early 18th dynasty. Um, when you actually look at these restored images, even when they've been restored once or twice, there still is a depression that they lay in. And there's mm. still actually re- residual chisel marks because when Akhenaten's agents defaced these things, they they really went to town on it. They They just like hacked it severely. Mm. Uh, and even when you smoothed it down, there were still residual chisel marks. Um, I found a couple of cases at Karnak where they had unrestored images, and it was just a, a sea of chisel marks. You couldn't see anything. Mm. But on one of the images on the uh, the uh, on on the eighth pylon, it was interesting because it was an image of one of the gods and it was right at the edge of the pylon where it had originally been carved when there was no wall. But then they had added a wall later and it had partly covered this image of this one particular deity. So when they'd built the wall, just part of the deity's body, his back, shoulder, and leg was partly covered by this wall. Mm. But then Akhenaten had defaced the parts of the god that were <laughs> uh, that were uncovered, mm. then Tutankhamun had moved the god over a little bit and recarved them so that he was whole, and then Seti the re restore the, the the part that Tut had restored. Then the wall was removed sometime after the end of antiquity and now what you see is three versions. You see the two (laughs) post-Amarna versions, and you see the bit that was covered by the wall that is totally pristine because it was covered in the Amarna period. And there are three versions which proves that these are real, that these secondary restorations are a real thing. And that was wonderful because it 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 shows that there wasn't a hole in this elaborate theory, that this was a real thing we were seeing. All these tr- double traces were not left over from the, the pre-Amarna originals. These were actual cases of double mm. restoration.
1: Hmm. We call that the glitch in the matrix effect of ongoing work. So SETI's, SETI's secondary restorations, while in some cases minor ultimately present him as a re-restorer or a renewer of the monuments, despite earlier work by previous kings. And this somewhat ties into one of Ramesses, I mean, sorry, Seti's throne names, which is the Wechem Mesut. He presents himself as a kind of Renaissance man. In In your estimation of Seti's character, or at least his agenda, is he trying to present himself as a wholly new beginning for the the royal machine the royal system or is he is he still very much acting uh, in continuity with what has come before just making making certain changes is he is he presenting himself as kind of a, a reset
2: no i think the the ramazite kings here at the beginning of the 19th dynasty they're very conscious that this is the beginning of a new era and the, the beginning of a new dynasty mm. and the, the ramazite kings uh you know, at the beginning of the 19th dynasty, you said the first Ramses the second are great innovators. On the one hand, uh, just as all Egyptian kings do, they want to look back to tradition. They want mm. to follow in the tradition of the ancestors. At the same time, they want to uh, uh, essentially outdo what the ancestors had done. They want to uh, they want to uh, exceed everything that. Uh, the ancestors had done that had only been de- done previously by the Creator God at the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the beginning already with Ramses the I, I think they are very conscious that this is the beginning of a new dynasty. Mm-hmm. And just as Ramses the had sort of modeled his titulary, especially his prenomen, on that of Akhmoza, and was conscious that you know that he was the beginning of a new royal line, just as Akhmoza had been. Uh, Seti I using this phrase, the rebirth, the repeating of birth, which actually had sometimes been used by Horemheb, mm. that they are conscious that this is a new royal line. In some ways, they're making a virtue of necessity of the fact that they have no connection whatsoever with the 18th dynasty and that they are a new royal family and they're making the best of it. Mm. They are still following in tradition. They do make a great effort, as we can see with Seti and and Ramses II at Abydos, for instance, of promoting the cult of the royal ancestors and claiming all previous kings as nominal ancestors and, and, you know, sort of spiritual ancestors, paying homage to the royal cult. But in terms of their own immediate family, with uh, Seti I promoting the cult of Ramses I as as his predecessor, and then Ramses the Second doing the same with his father and grandfather, that they are a new family, but you know, and their their family ties are going to be promoted. So yes, I do think they are seeing themselves as starting a new era, even as they also look back to great paragons of the past. And and again, we see that with Seti looking back to uh, great models of authority. In the 18th Dynasty, mm-hmm. such as Amenhotep III and uh, Tutmosis III, you know, the Great Builder and Divine King A3, and then the Great Warrior Pharaoh Tutmosis III, and you see this in various uh, periods in Egyptian history, where uh, kings, especially of a new line, will look back to kings of the previous Great Age. So at the beginning of the 18th dynasty, kings like Amenhotep I look back to the beginning of the 12th dynasty. At the beginning of the 12th dynasty, they look back to the great kings of the old kingdom uh, as models of authority. And I think that's what uh, they still see them as a new fresh start, but they also want to look back to the previous great age.
0: Mm,
2: Absolutely. I suppose that's uh,
1: perhaps best exemplified in Seti's king list at Abydos, and we'll dive into Abydos, uh, the temple, in more detail in just a moment. But since we're talking about uh, royal lineages, it would it would be a shame not to touch on this. Seti presents us with a monumental image and encapsulation of the royal heritage and the royal lineage, or more specifically, his version of it. Looking at the king list that he presents at Abydos temple, the first thing that is obviously notable is that certain rulers and periods are left out. Seti presents a, a very tidy list, which in which certain names are omitted. There are many reasons why he might leave out some names and uh, focus on others. But looking at the king list overall, what is your sense of Seti's perception of the great figures of the past? You know, who does he consider illegitimate and who does he consider particularly noteworthy? Bearing in mind, there's you know like a hundred names to go through. Do we get a sense from the Abydos king list of his particular version of the legitimate Horaces?
2: To, to some extent, and this is especially true for the more recent kings of the 18th dynasty. Um, a couple of things just to keep in mind. One is that of the uh, king list that we have from ancient Egypt, the largest number, in fact, the overwhelming number, are actually Ramesside, mm-hmm. And so... Although there is uh, one particular one from Karnak in the time of Thutmose III, the overwhelming majority of them are actually Ramesside and especially early 19th dynasty, including the Turin king list that's on Papyrus. Mm-hmm. And this really, I think, is no accident. Where, uh, and we have to also understand that what we think of, in, especially the one at Abydos of Seti and the one of Ramses as well, though not as well preserved, that's in the British Museum, that these are not historical documents. These are actually cult, cultic and ideological documents. They are offering lists that are meant to honor the cultic memory of these kings that, that Seti and his crown prince Ramses are make, making offerings to the cause spirits of the uh, deified royal ancestors to make offerings to their, their spirits to keep them alive in the afterlife. And therefore, it's an honor roll of kings who are worthy to be revered and whose spirits are to be maintained. Um, Part of the reason for who is on the list, uh, and again, it's not every king that that could have been on the list, but part of the reason is there's only so much wall space. So there are any number of kings that are omitted from the list, and this is especially true for some of the earlier kings in the later Old Kingdom, and even in the Middle Kingdom, where there just isn't enough space physically to place them on the list, um, and it's interesting because the format of the list: there are three rows. It's almost like a, it's almost like a, a, a spreadsheet, mm-hmm. a grid of three rows. But the bottom row of, of boxes actually just repeats the, the name of SETI over because it's it's an offering formula and it's the list of the kings. And then the bottom row is tells us that they have all received offerings from SETI. And, and again, that just shows us the purpose of this list is is cultic and ideological. It's not historical. Mm-hmm. Um, but. But in terms of the, 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 the cases that are especially conspicuous by their absence, are those 18th dynasty pharaohs that are missing. And in particular, uh, we have Hatshepsut, who is missing between uh, Tutmosis II and Tutmosis III. And then the post-Amarna pharaohs, uh, and the Marna and post-Amarna pharaohs, because the list goes from Amenhotep III and then skips right to Horemhet. And these are, you know, these are obviously cases of pharaohs who said he is considering politically incorrect or ideologically incorrect. Uh, that because Hatshepsut was a female and kingship is uh, by definition supposed to be a masculine office, for that reason she is omitted from the list because she doesn't constitute a legitimate king. Mm. And then because of the Amarna period, uh, Akhenaten and all of his, his successors, and again, we can debate about how many and who they were, but all the kings between Akhenaten and I are considered illegitimate, and therefore they are deleted from the list. Now, it's interesting because if you go back into earlier periods, well, there might have been some earlier kings that might have been at some point considered uh, illegitimate in earlier phases. Uh, Some of them are not admitted. Mm -hmm. In the Sixth Dynasty, I believe a king named Usurkare, who was the successor of Teti, but who seems to have actually overthrown and maybe even was responsible for the assassination of Teti, and who usurped the throne um, from Pepi I, um, is actually on the list. Mm. And then there's some other perfectly legitimate uh, kings of the first intermediate period and and the, the later Middle Kingdom who are admitted simply because there's not enough room in terms of wall space. But mm. and So I would say that the clearest cases of omission for ideological reasons are in the 18th dynasty names, whereas before that, the names that are emitted seem mainly have to do with a uh, emission based on lack of wall space mm, although uh, it's also true that the hixo things are not on the list now that i think of it and that almost mm. certainly is also uh, for ideological reasons
0: mm,
1: certainly so we have a sense of Seti the first and uh, ramesses the first building on the legacy of what came before trying to outdo their predecessors but also acknowledging and, to some respect leaning into the fact that they are a new lineage, a new household that has taken authority. So one of the classic ways that a pharaoh might establish or promote their legitimacy is through monument building. And Seti I, in his 10 plus years of reign, we'll say, manages to achieve some really significant monuments. The first one I'd like to touch on is the Hypo-style hall at Karnak, because you have worked there for uh, many years now. And 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 recently, you've been leading the uh, examination and survey of that particular monument. The first thing I'd like to touch on, because in the public discourse, it's sometimes still an issue of controversy, but you have seemed to have rather settled it in your own analysis. Who definitively started the Hypostyle Hall, and what is the evidence for that?
2: Well, the, there are, are some, and it's been long suggested, that the central colonnade the great um, open uh, blossom papyrus capital columns of the central so-called nave uh, that resemble uh, superficially the the central colonnade of the uh, of Luxor Temple that you see that was built at the end of the reign of Amenhotep III and decorated by Tutankhamun and I has led some to argue that perhaps the the central colonnade of the hypostyle hall at Karnak was built in the 18th dynasty uh, and it's it's a theory that keeps coming up and mm. really the only uh, evidence for this is oh this colonnade at Karnak kind of looks like the one at Luxor temple maybe Amenhotep III you know built it mm. and variations on this theory have been put forward when there have been suggestions well maybe it couldn't have been Amenhotep III so maybe it was head and there's really not been any convincing evidence offered, or even rebuttals to various evidence that myself and a few others have put forward for why it can't be 18th dynasty, other than, yeah, but it still looks like it, so maybe it is, or I think it has to be. Some of this is, I think, kind of uh, a a kind of 18th dynasty fanboyism, uh, sure. said that, that those uh, those Egyptologists that are so passionate about the 18th Dynasty just don't want to give credit for certain things as being Ramazide. Sure. But uh, in terms of the uh, in terms of some of the basic evidence that suggests that the central colonnade of the Hypostyle Hall, along with the rest of the building, is not only Ramazide, but specifically Seti I.
0: Mm. Uh,
2: because that's another thing. Uh, the other arguments that have been put forward for the earliest uh, construction of the Hypostol Hall have suggested that maybe the building was started as early as the reign of Horemheb, or perhaps um, by uh, by Ramses I. Mm. We know that Horemheb built the second pylon. The Hypostol Hall sits between the second and third pylon. Mm. third pylon, of course, is Amenhotep III. Um, and uh, we also know that along uh, the top of the western wall of the uh, hypostal Hall, which is actually part of the wall of, uh, of the, the second pylon, that there are some reliefs that depict Ramses I. Mm-hmm. And for these reasons, it had been suggested years ago that maybe Horam had, or said, uh, Ramses I, had uh, built the hypostal Hall, and perhaps that Ramses I began to decorate the hypostyle hall. Uh, and this was in part based on an old theory of, of how Egyptians decorated uh, monuments. We understand how they built monuments because it was a bit like additive printing. They would uh, lay down the foundations, and then what you would do is you would lay down the first layer of blocks for the entire building. Mm. Again, sort of like a a giant ground plan of blocks, and then you would fill in the space between with Earth, and then you would sort of build uh, ramps on either side made of Earth fill or mud brick or or sort of a combination, and you would drag up the next layer of blocks for all the columns and all the the wall sections and lay those into place, and then you fill it all in between with, with Earth. Uh, extend and raise the ramps, bring in the next layer and repeat the process. And at the end of that, the entire building would be completely buried uh, and the the ramps would be extended. And then you would remove the earth fill and a a sort of one way elevator ride. Now, we also know and we can see this from other unfinished buildings at Karnak, that the walls would be rather uh, rough, uh, rough hewn, and they would have to smooth them down. But it was also believed that as part of this smoothing down process, that they would also uh, decorate them as they went down. Mm -hmm. And and an early scholar from the University of Chicago had argued Mm -hmm. that because the scenes of Ramses I were at the top of the wall, that this shows that they were decorating it in this method. But when you look at the chronology of other reliefs in the Hypostol Hall, especially reliefs that show Seti I and Ramses II, the, con- the chronology of the decoration based on the theory that you were uh, carving the reliefs top to bottom, made no sense whatsoever. Mm-hmm. In fact, in some places, you would actually have to conclude that they were actually digging tunnels into the earth fill <laughs> to carve reliefs you know underground before they had completely removed or like they were you know d- you know mining, it just made no sense whatsoever, and there were other uh, there was other evidence, not just from Karnak, but other monuments that suggested that they actually smoothed the walls down as they as they came down, mm-hmm. and then they raised wooden scaffolding to paint the decoration in outline and then to carve it. And in fact, we have also representations in Tumart that shows them using wooden scaffolding to get at, like for instance, to to sculpt giant statues, like in the mm-hmm. tomb of Rakhmey, right? So, again, one of the parts of my dissertation, looking at the the, the temple of, of Karnak, uh, Hypostyle Hall, was to show that, in fact, they used wooden scaffolding to decorate large
0: monuments.
2: Mm-hmm. And yeah. other reasons that set uh, that the images of Ramses I in the Hypostyle Hall were not carved by Ramses the but were carved long after his death. As, as sort of memorials uh, mm. by SETI later in his reign. Mm.
1: Very good. So we, based on studies of monuments, we have a very strong idea of the, the stages of construction, uh, raising the columns first and then removing the ramps and earth and then building scaffolding to decorate as they go. Now, I will ask one small question because I know that somebody in the comments is going to ask this, <clears throat> but you have discussed it in your uh, dissertation and your book on SETI. In the 1980s, there was an archaeo- some archaeological work at Karnak, which perhaps erroneously suggested that there were brick podiums or platforms underneath some, of the, uh, un- underneath some of the columns, which suggested a late 18th dynasty date. Are you able to quickly comment on that and why that's incorrect um, material?
2: Yeah, the 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 problem with the foundations of the Hypostyle Hall is that we don't really have a good understanding, and I think they were fairly heterogeneous. Early reports by the French archaeological uh, in uh, uh, mission at Karnak from the early twentieth century suggest that um, many of the columns were supported by uh, piers made from stacks of talatat, but there were also larger blocks. Now, during uh, the first half of the earliest decades of the 20th century, um, especially after a bunch of columns had collapsed in 1899, it was necessary to actually extract some of these crumbling talitat and replace them with piers of fired brick. And this wasn't often well documented. And and I think that uh, for all these reasons, sometimes I wonder whether people were actually discussing actually modern bricks that were placed uh, there during one of these uh, early 20th century restoration efforts, and then coming to the idea that that this was somehow uh, uh, ancient foundations. I mean, fired brick was was not really common in the ancient times, and I have no idea why Fired brick foundations would be a hallmark of the 18th dynasty and not the 19th dynasty. Mm-hmm. So it really just doesn't add up. Mm-hmm. Um, as, and, and from what I have seen, uh, from uh, there's a French Egyptologist that has been looking at, at uh, old records of the of the uh, the foundations. Mostly, it seems to be uh, Talatat foundations, but there's also evidence of larger, um, uh, some larger uh, sandstone blocks that were put uh, under there as well. Mm-hmm. But there are also the remains of earlier structures that were under there. So, and and nobody's really been able to dig under the the, the columns. Mm-hmm. I would like to. Get permission. We once got it, and then unfortunately, we we didn't have time to do the excavations. I would like to do some test excavations between some of the larger columns, and and in the areas between uh, the larger and smaller columns, because you often also hear uh, suggestions that there that there are side walls uh, between uh, you know between the first row of uh, of smaller columns that would have come. Uh, supposedly uh, been the remains of the kind of sidewalls that enclose the colonnaded Luxor Temple, but again, nothing like that has ever been found. And 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 I don't think, from what 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 we know so far, that it's likely to have been there. Plus, if it had been there, and the process of dismantling it, uh, and somehow building the hypostyle halls, uh, smaller columns and there would have been it it would have been a very unlikely process and uh, it, it would have left its mark also on the um, the the, uh, the second pylon of hormheb so this this old theory of the of the 18th dynasty lost colonnade of Amenhotep III yeah. for archaeological reasons for architectural reasons to say nothing also of the epigraphic reasons because there's nothing on the big columns that is a single trace that can correspond to any decoration before the reign of uh, Ramses second, and on the top of the columns, the blocks of Seti I. There's no 18th dynasty inscriptions or even trace of inscriptions whatsoever. The other thing, one last thing about the architecture is the height of the blocks on the big columns, the small columns, and the walls are of the identical height which is what you would expect if all of them were being laid at the same time so that you could build them in this in this manner, whereas if you had built you know the colonnade first and then added added the smaller columns and the walls at a later time, then they wouldn't necessarily be of the same height. Mm. but in fact, they are of the same height because of course they were all built at the same time
1: <laughs> very good. I like that very succinct, very succinct summary and argument. <clears throat> So I guess, I guess a very simple but perhaps um, meaningful question is, what is the significance of the hyperstyle style hall significantly? Why would SETI add this particular thing to, to Karnak? What does it symbolize? What is the meaning of that monument?
2: Well, I always like to call it the gods' living room. Um, mm-hmm. Egyptian temples were were quite literally mansions of the gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were the, the the sort of the public space or the, the, the you know a, a Egyptian temple basically was a tripart plan: the outer courtyard, uh, the 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 hypostyle hall, and then the inner sanctuary, which has the 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 holy of holies and the side chapels and the treasuries and storerooms, etc. And it, it, one of the one one of the the some of the dedicatory inscriptions that describe the function and purpose of the hypostyle hall, it's it's described variously as a festival hall. Mm. It's sort of the venue for for the uh, the festival processions when the god's sacred uh, bark, its uh, various icons were were transported. It's also a place where when uh, the sacred bark was carried from the sanctuary to go out during festival processions, it could also rest within the hypostyle hall and receive offerings. Um, It was also called a mansion of millions of years, which is a very particular type of royal cult temple Mm-hmm. In which uh, the 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 king as a an avatar, um, di- of of a, a, the the divine king was worshipped as an avatar, not only of his own divinity, but often as a uh, as an aspect of one or more different gods. And so the the deified Seti the first, and perhaps also the deified Seti the first as an avatar of amun Re himself, uh, was was worshipped here and later, of course, Ramses II. And you see in the uh, the uh, the wall uh, inscriptions uh, and images, we see the cult of the deified Seti I. In the north, it's very much about Seti's kingship. And in the south, uh, in Ramses' uh, images, we see a lot about Ramses worshipping his deified father and sometimes his deified self. Um, and th- there's also an interesting link between uh, the the Hypostyle Hall and the royal cult temple of Sadi I at, at, at Gurna on the West Bank. I, I don't like this term mortuary temple that's often used for these cult temples of kings on the West Bank. Uh, they, they functioned during the king's lifetime, and the, the, the Egyptians had a name for them. They called them mansions of millions of years. Mm-hmm. If you want to give them a modern name, let's call them uh, royal cult temples. They were for the cult of the king. And as the, in, the, in, in Thebes, they were the cult of the king as an avatar of, of Amun-Re. The name, the official name of the Hypostel Hall is... The 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 divine mansion called uh, Seti the first is beneficial uh, for uh, uh, you know, in uh, the estate of Amun. and the Gorna temple is called uh, uh, the the divine uh, mansion uh, called Seti the first is uh, beneficial in the estate of Amun on the west bank of Thebes. Mm. And they, so they're actually parallel foundations, which are dedicated both to Amun and to the cult of Seti I as an avatar of Amun, and and as they say, they're linked together. I'd like to put a put a pin on the beneficial
1: because we're going to come back to that word, particularly with a later monument, which is relevant for Seti I. So, the hypostyle hall contributes uh, architecturally to Karnak as the sort of the classic house of the god. Why is it papyrus columns? Why is it shaped like that?
2: Yeah, the, the, very often these um, types of, uh, of pillared halls which, um, which we call hypostyle, uh, they, they were the, 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 the Egyptians called them wajit, hmm. which basically means uh, papyrus halls, from the, from this term that refers to papyrus columns, wajit. And there, there actually are a couple of wajits uh, from the 18th dynasty in the in the rear areas of Karnak Temple between the fourth, fifth, and sixth pylons. Uh, and there, traditionally, the the columns are made in the shape of papyrus. Now, the earlier ones, they usually have these sort of papyrus cluster columns that are like. Because uh, we, th- you might imagine that a papyrus, uh, the stem of a papyrus is actually round, but in fact, it's actually sort of a triangular shape. Mm-hmm. And the earlier papyrus columns were actually um, sort of, uh, were actually bundle shape, like you took bundles of these uh, these together. Under Seti I, he began to make these, the, the smaller columns, which are closed bud, uh, he he transformed these bundle uh, papyrus columns that that had these corrugated uh, these corrugated edges. Uh, he he transformed them into these smooth sided ones, uh, and and the big columns which did have these round uh, you know smooth round sides, except they would put these tiny three ridges down three sides of them, just to suggest the hint. But these left spaces for more decoration to be carved, inscriptions and scenes. The big ones to show that the papyrus bloom had opened, and they were in the center, and the closed bud ones, uh, you know, but what it represented, a big clump of papyrus. Now, a temple, again, also was a model of the universe of the dawn of creation. As you you entered the temple and you went towards the holy of the holies, the ground level would rise up. And in fact, the, 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 the roof level would come down. So when you came into the sanctuary, you were in the highest point and the roof was low because you were going back to the beginning of time on the mound of creation that had just arose from the waters of Nun, the the primordial ocean at the beginning of time, so the Hypostyle hall was the clump of papyrus that grew on the first mound uh, at the, uh, you know, the, the creator God had created at the beginning of the universe. Mm. And, and so it was it was it, that's what it was, essentially. It was part of this larger model of the creation of the universe, hmm.
0: uh,
1: symbolically. Good. so essentially. You might say that the, the hypostyle hall is in stone, what the Asheru Lake around the Temple of Moot is in actual plants.
2: Yes, to some extent. And so it really has on a, it functions on multiple symbolic as well as functional levels. It's mm. you know, part of this larger temple. It has various symbolic meanings, and it also serves multiple purposes.
1: Mm. So the... The hypostyle hall was roofed, so most of the time it was dark, except for the clerestory windows in the central axis. That brings that brings to mind the monumental entrance to the complex of the step pyramid at Saqqara, which has uh, the, the bundle papyrus in stone. In that sort of dark space, it would feel very much like you were entering a, an enormous forest of sorts, wouldn't it?
0: Yeah, hmm.
2: one of the things I'm I'm hoping to do a project on hmm. is to actually to, to build a, a 3D model of the building and try to replicate the light environment because uh, the roof structure is only partly preserved. Hmm. Uh, we the, on top of the columns was a massive roof system that consisted of these uh, ceiling beams that are called architraves and. In the south wing, they're mostly preserved. In the north wing, most of them had fallen, although they have these sort of a modern uh, sort of concrete and steel maquettes. Mm. Uh, they'd crisscross. Um, they crisscross. On top of these uh, these architrave beams, they laid uh, uh, thinner slabs of stone, which roofed over the ceiling slabs. Unfortunately, these were thinner, and most all of them have fallen away, Although other temples, uh, some of them survive at contemporary temples like Kansu Temple or, the, or parts of the Ramazim or in, in Medinet Habu. Uh, and, of course, in some later temples like Edfu and Dindara, most all of them are still preserved. Mm. But we also know from, uh, from these temples that, uh, that they also had these light shafts that were in the ceilings. And so in addition to the clerestory roof, with these graded big window grills, as well as the the doorways that, when they were open, would have emitted light, there would have been a system of these light shafts. And what we would dearly love to reconstruct, and it's uh, is what what this might have been like. And if we could recreate this in sort of a three D environment, maybe using one of these game engines, and mm. and and also because the walls would have been coated with brilliant white plaster. And the and the scenes would have been decorated with with colored relief that would have been just as brilliant as the tomb of Nefertari or the tomb of Seti I. Uh, what that would have been like because it may be that it created a kind of ambient light that was a lot, if not you know, brilliantly bright, but a lot less gloomy than we might otherwise suspect. Okay. Uh, But then the space, too, it it would have been interesting because, on the one hand, you would have been in this forest. Mm. But even today, when you you go there, in, in certain directions, you can look and you can see often certain angles halfway across the hall. But other directions you look and you're sort of surrounded by mm. these massive stone columns. So there's a sense of being closed in, but also a sense of seeing wide vistas. It's it's sort of a paradox mm. of enclosure and of uh, of wide vistas in the same space.
1: Mm. It's surprisingly claustrophobic in some corners, isn't it?
2: Yeah, but but as I say, that's true. But then there are other places where there are large spaces that mm. are that are open. Mm. So it's it's a unique space in that sense. And
1: the digital reconstruction, um, yeah, that's that sounds like a project for Unreal Engine Five. I was I was just curious whether you saw the Malkata reconstruction that was put up that was finalized recently by Frank Monier, I think, which is. You know, you can finally do a little digital walkthrough of the Malkata Palace. Did you see that?
2: I I may have just seen a couple of stills of it. I'd like Mm. to look at that. I I know also the Giza project has done some wonderful work. Mm. So I'm looking um, into people that can do this kind of thing with the Hypostel Hall. It went out
1: on the um, Egyptology Electronic Forum mailing list. Was that Frank Monia's reconstruction of Malkata? It's got a website. It's, you know, you literally click to go through the building um yes but that sounds like digital a digital reconstruction is certainly a new or not a new but a a very exciting avenue for monumental study one thing i will ask and it might be slightly controversial depending on one's perspective the egyptian government is putting a lot of resources into Repairing and restoring certain monuments. In some cases, it's very simple cleaning and um, conserving images, like in the hypostyle hall and at medine at Habu. I'm curious, what is your perspective on a hypothetical proposal to say, build a wooden roof over the hypostyle hall so that it, re- so that one can restore the original appearance in some capacity? Is that something that you think is uh, acceptable or should be done or not? I had not actually heard anything about this, to be
2: honest with you.
1: I, oh no, this is, hy- this is just a this is just a hypothesis.
2: I don't I don't no I don't think that's the kind of thing you would want to do mm. uh, is actually do that kind of intervention. Hmm. I, I will see this though. I I just went to Egypt for the first time since before COVID in in um, in March, hmm. and the 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 kind of conservation work that the Egyptian government doing there. I'd seen pictures of it, but it's really spectacular. Hmm. Um, they're investing quite a lot of money, and there you they have a huge team of I think it's about a hundred uh, con- conservators. They have been cleaning. Um, the columns to reveal colors. They had done uh, the the central columns. We always knew that there was a fair amount of color on these columns. And you look at these old nineteenth century um, pictures that, for the likes of you know the um, uh, David Roberts and some mm-hmm. of the others that show a, a, a certain degree of paint. There, we can still see faded colors before this work was done. Uh, you know some of the other cleaning work that is that was done in Kansu Temple by the American Research Center revealed beautiful colors. There was a lot at at Habu. They've done work elsewhere at Dendara and now at uh, now at uh, Esna. But I was uh, just floored by seeing how much color they had they had found, uh, and just the the beautiful work they they've been doing. Um, And I was also very pleased to see that one of the problems in the Hypostol Hall was that a lot of the bases and the lower parts of the shaft of the columns had suffered over the centuries from the, the groundwater infiltration and the salts, which had destroyed the the stone, not just the relief, but even damaging and structurally undermining the, the, the the stone itself. Uh, And where, uh, Some of them had to be shored up with, um, you know, brick. And very often uh, up until now, there was a lot of restoration work that was using cement to cover up these spaces. The problem with the cement was that it doesn't allow the, the salts in the in the groundwater to escape and instead forces them up into the stone. Mm. And uh, the American Research Center had uh, been showing more uh, sustainable methods to uh, the Egyptian conservators uh, several years ago of using lime mortar, which allows uh, allows these salts to uh, come to the surface in the restoration mortar instead of migrating into the ancient stone and they had done this on a, a certain scale. Uh, and now the uh, the Egyptian antiquities uh, ministry uh, conservators are using it on a systematic scale. They are also replacing some modern uh, and not really authentic uh, type of column bases in the hypostyle Hall, which much more authentic and proper and properly uh, Again, trying to eliminate concrete with natural mortars Mm. to systematically repair and to make more authentic the column bases throughout the Hubistal Hall. So the work that I just can't say enough uh, good things about the work that the Egyptian Antiquity Service is doing there, it's really spectacular. And it's a great improvement. Uh, giving the hypostyle hall the tender loving care that, it, and it, 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 when you go there and just see the the riot of color that's actually on these columns, it's it's just simply amazing.
1: Very good. And when do you do you have plans to return to Egypt anytime soon?
2: Yeah, So I'm I'm hoping my uh, my team will go out uh, to work at Karnak in uh, November and December. Uh, we had been working since 2011 on the columns. Mm. And one of the, uh, I have a former grad student, uh, Mark Jansen, uh, who's uh, at a, a university in Nashville, Tennessee, Lipscomb. And he has been working for a few years on the sort of sub project, working on the, uh, the famous battle scenes of King mm. uh on an adjoining wall uh, next to the Hypostol Hall. Um, and uh, recently, we've also just begun working on the famous Egyptian-Hittite peace treaty. But one of the things that i would left on the back burner for many years that I want to get back to is on the Ramses II battle scenes on the south wall of the Hypostyle Hall, uh, to, to resume work on finalizing our, uh, our re- record of those, to get back to work on the Hittite peace treaty, and also, there is a large uh, section of wall that has a um, an edition of the, the famous poem mm-hmm. text of the Battle of Kadesh on the southeast corner of the hypostyle Hall that I would also like to make a facsimile, you know, a definitive publication of that. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm hoping to get uh, get to work on. It's going to be several seasons of work to do all of that. Mm. But that's what we're hoping to uh, to resume work on um, this, uh, this winter. Excellent.
1: Well, watch this space and we'll look forward to hearing more. My conversation with Professor Brand continues after the break. See you in a moment. Hi, everyone. This is Scott. If you want to learn about the world's oldest civilizations, find out how they were rediscovered. Follow the story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra's descendants over ten generations, or take a deep dive into the Iron Age or the Hellenistic era, then check out the Ancient World Podcast. Available on all podcasting platforms, or go to ancientworldpodcast.com. That's the Ancient World Podcast. And now, part two in my conversation with Professor Peter Brand. We have discussed the early monuments of Seti I, most notably the Hypostyle Hall at Karnak. Now, we turn to some truly grandiose structures, like the temple... Like the King's Temple at Abydos. We recently explored the Abydos Temple in a multi-episode series, Professor Brand has studied this monument extensively for his PhD research and the book The Monuments of Seti I. He shares his insights into the temple, its surrounding complexes, and the religious significance of these projects. So the hypostyle Hall is a very famous monument, but I would be remiss if I did not take some time to ask you about Abydos. Abydos is an enormous cultic site, we don't have nearly enough time to discuss the whole thing, we'd be here all day. But Seti I's major or great monument there is an enormous temple. Uh, we'll call it a cult temple for the king. And this is this is justly famous to many people as one of the more beautifully preserved monuments of New Kingdom Egypt. The, the wall carving in Seti's areas is exceptional. It has many unique and uh, fascinating scenes and structures. The first thing I'd like to ask, uh, broadly speaking, is what is the... What is the significance of this particular temple at this location? Why would why does Seti build this here?
2: I think what uh, what Seti I the first is doing, and some of the some of the 18th Dynasty kings had also built uh, temples here, is going back to the ancient tradition that goes all the way back to the beginning of Egyptian civilization, with the the tombs of the first and second Dynasty kings there, as well as the tradition. Uh, dating back perhaps to the old kingdom and and certainly the middle kingdom of building cenotaph tombs uh, of, you know, essentially the connection with the cult of Osiris and the idea of of building symbolic tombs here. Of course, what Seti and some of these other uh, 18th dynasty kings before him were doing were building, you know, cult tombs. And of course, Seti also adds this uh, mysterious structure of the Osirian. As a kind of symbolic tomb to Osiris, and to some extent, I suppose himself as Osiris. Mm. Um, but of course, what is so unique about uh, his temple, and he, and that's different from all the, you know, the earlier structures. Or, for instance, uh, uh, Ramses II's smaller temple that he builds at the very beginning of his reign, is that Seti's temple is not just dedicated to himself, or even just to himself and the Abydos triad of Osiris, Isis, and Horus. Uh, And of course, including this, you know, the the, temple that is involved with the mysteries of of the Osiris cult with this extra suite of rooms dedicated to various festival rites for Osiris. Mm -hmm. And of course, the the suite of rooms that's dedicated to the the cults of the uh, Memphite gods uh, of of Nephertem and Sokar and and are, who are the sort of Memphite versions, in the sense of that they're funerary deities that are the northern uh, uh, equivalents to the of uh, of Osiris Isis and and uh, and Horus, but that also the other great gods of the Egyptian pantheon, uh, sort of the the national triad of of Amun Ra and Ptah. And of course, then the royal cult through the cult of the royal ancestors—that it's kind of almost like a, a national shrine—and it has this unique, um, un- unique structure with these seven chapels dedicated to the Abidos Chapel, you know, the great triad of Amun, Rey and Ta, and then of course the chapel, uh, the royal chapel to the deified Seti. And mm. this unique uh, architectural design with this L-shaped extension, with the the cult of the royal ancestors, and and you know the 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 Nefertem and Sokar uh, suite, all this, everything about this temple is unique, unusual, and of course exquisite in terms of the quality of the decoration.
1: Mm. So, would should we perhaps call it a a Pantheon like the Pantheon in Rome?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a very good way of putting it. It's it is utterly unique. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that I mean, it isn't just the, the unusual design of the temple and the the just the incredibly beautiful reliefs, but also it's it almost reminds me of some of these Greco-Roman temples in just how exotic the iconography is. Um mm. uh, you never until the Greco-Roman period you never see so much unusual and exotic iconography
0: mm. in what, an Egyptian. What do you
2: mean temple. by what do you mean by that specifically
1: in terms of the, the subject matter well, or the style or
2: just yeah, the subject matter and just sort of the wild and wonderful imagery mm. that you see in the in the temple in the temple reliefs? I think about some of the imagery you see, and it's actually in the Nefertem uh, and Sokar uh, suite, but where you see these two uh, versions of the resurrection of Osiris and the conception of Horus post mortem, where Isis, uh, you know, copulates with the de- the deceased uh, Osiris. And she, you know, perches on his penis in the form of a of a of a kite. Mm. And all these other just these unusual imagery that you see. It's just extraordinary. You just don't see anything like it anywhere else. Mm.
1: Why do you think he why do you think that survives so specifically at Abydos and not at other temples? Is it due to the design and function of the temple or is it an accident of preservation?
2: One suggestion uh, that, that a colleague of mine from uh, New Zealand had, uh, Tony Spallinger, is that that if not the high priest of, of uh, Abidos, a man, uh, I think it's uh, what is there was a high priest at this time, Ramses. Uh, I'm sorry, his name is escaping me, but uh, mm-hmm. I talk about it in my in my book. Uh, but he was promoted uh, by Ramses II to be high priest of, uh, of Amun. Mm-hmm. But this, the, either this man or somebody on his staff, uh, was just a brilliant uh, uh, priest who may have been responsible for, uh, with his great imagination, for some of the design of the temple and its imagery, because mm-hmm. it just seemed to be somebody or some group of people with great imagination who came up with this uh iconography and perhaps also with the uh the imagination to come up with this temple design it's Mm -hmm. just very imaginative and one Mm -hmm. just expects that whether it was one lone genius or a group of them it just somebody with great brain power was was really indulging themselves in <laughs> in building this temple and designing its its decoration.
0: Mm.
1: So touching on the architecture, the the Arbydos temple does appear to have a somewhat unique shape with its kind of L L shaped configuration. A sort of an extension moves to the south where you have the the king list, the corridor of the bulls, and the bark shrine for. I think it is. Uh, why, why is that extension there and not at other temples? Or is it at other temples? We just don't identify them.
2: No, it, it is a unique feature. And again, because it's unique, uh, to try to explain why, it's, it's, mm. I think it goes back to what we were just talking about. It is whoever the genius or geniuses that came up with all other aspects uh, mm. that are utterly unique. Mm. is it's just part and parcel of what we were just talking about. Why does it have seven chapels all lined up in a row? Mm. And uh, before Ramses altered the design, those seven chapels also had seven separate entrances through the portico. Mm. So it, it it's all part of this unique design. Mm. Um, so asking why is why does why do why are any of these mm. uh, unique features of this temple that way? Because some some genius came up with it all, I, I can't otherwise really explain it.
1: Sure. So um, architecturally, it's it's of it's of a whole with the rest of the monument. It's not a later extension.
2: No, no, I know this is clearly all part of it, and it wasn't. I mean, the building was. Uh, by the end of Seti's reign, it was not incompletely decorated, hmm. but I know I think this uh, the structure was basically complete in terms of uh, its architecture by the end of Seti's reign. And in fact, we also know because of the way the temple was decorated, um, and Seti using this exquisite bas relief style, perhaps realized that uh, it would take some time to complete all these exquisite carvings. They used, uh, we, know, we know that traditionally, the way you laid out decoration is you would make these quick drafts in red, and then you do the fine outlines in black. And I'm sure if you talked about Hep's tomb when the early podcast, you, you can see that. But at Seti's Temple of Debidos, there was another stage after these black and white outlines, black and red outlines, was the then in a simplified palette scheme of white, and red and uh, and yellow to then sort of simply paint the uh the the images sometimes in fairly amount of detail before they were carved. Mm-hmm. And some of these painted drafts still exist. And these uh, are go into this section of the temple, some of them partly carved by Ramses II, and but they were they were laid out in paint by Seti I, which mm-hmm. indicates that Seti had not just uh painted them and obviously had built those parts of the temple too. And again, there's no reason to believe that this isn't part of the integral design. This wasn't just an add on. This was part of the original design of the temple. And when you see the way the, even the mud brick structures there, the the system of, uh, of uh, these, uh, you know, these storage rooms and the miniature palace that fit quite nicely into this uh, uh, you know, in between the, the main uh, part of the temple and the L shape extension, so that the overall structure fits in a nice rectangular design, that, that it's all part of a whole. Mm. Very good. <clears throat> it's very thorough. Thank you. So,
1: again, I know I'm going to get comments or questions about this, so I have to touch on it. So, as part of the, um, we'll call it the Pantheon complex of Abydos, SETI also adds this not unique but certainly unusual monument at the back which is often called the Osirion the first thing to ask about it is do you view the the Osirion as a tomb for a symbolic tomb for Seti as Osiris himself you know Seti as deified as Osiris or is it more for Osiris individually where even if there's if there's a distinction at all
0: yeah, I
2: I don't think that it's likely to have a distinction. I suspect that it's sort of a bit of both, mm-hmm. uh, because again, I think if you look in the Seti Temple, um, you can see areas where the 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 Seti's identity merges with Osiris. So, for instance, if you look in the seven chapels, obviously you have the you know the the chapel of Seti, and then of course you have the chapel. Of Osiris, which is just sort of almost like a dummy chapel because mm-hmm. the back of it leads into the Osiris suite. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting there is you have in there these three chapels, mm-hmm. one of which is the, you know, a chapel of Isis and a chapel of Horus. Mm-hmm. But then there is also a chapel which is nominally, presumably, the chapel of Osiris. Mm-hmm. But in that chapel is actually images of the deified Seti the first. In the mm. guise of Osiris, hmm. well, mostly in the guise of Osiris. Sometimes he's just the deified uh, Seti, and mm. other times he's clearly clearly the deified Seti in the guise of Osiris. And in one case, he's actually the deified Seti, uh, who is a composite of Osiris and Amun.
0: Mm.
2: Interesting. So yeah. when I think of when I think of uh, the Osirian. To me, uh, it's not really a choice. Is it Sadi or is it Osiris? To me, it seems likely to be both.
1: Mm-hmm. Out of curiosity, you know, why does? Well, the why is always difficult with these these sort of questions. But we have we have an example of that monument from Senusret the of the Middle Kingdom, and then Amosis the first also at uh, South Abydos, and then. Broadly speaking, there seems to be a relative gap during the 18th dynasty of these types of monuments before Seti revives the practice. If you had to speculate, because it is rather speculative, why do you think he might have specifically chosen to revive this this type of project at this time?
2: Well, unless we're just missing some other ones in between, I suspect that this is a case of uh, Seti I looking for older models of authority, and trying to revive ancient traditions as a way of legitimating himself mm. by reviving these older types of monuments, these older forms of kingship, uh, and uh, as part of his building program. Mm. And so uh, going to Abydos and building this type of building that the glorious ancestors had built, and perhaps that had never that hadn't been built for quite a long time. This is part of his, uh, you know, effort at legitimation by reviving the the reviving the ways of the ancestors, but in to some extent also one-upping them because again. <laughs> I, I, I suspect that uh, that this is quite a bit more spectacular in terms of its scale and complexity than what Senwosret
1: the mm. Third had built. Mm. Well, it certainly worked because that this temple is now the archetypal uh, cenotaph of the region. Out of curiosity, Ramesses II also builds a small temple just a couple of hundred meters north of uh, Seti's own monument. Much smaller, much less um, architecturally or artistically impressive is there any evidence for rameses starting his own oserion behind that monument
2: well this is what i'd love to know i was just recently talking with um the uh, the excavator the Sam uh, sama iskander mm-hmm. uh and ogden Galed, and i was talking to sama he was i went to abidos uh and he was working there and they're doing some excavation they actually found under the temple evidence of some giant old kingdom structure Ooh. but as of yet <laughs> he doesn't he hasn't found any evidence of a ramesside you know osirian there yeah. it doesn't mean that there isn't one but so far he has not found anything yet although i got the impression he doesn't seem very optimistic that there is one so <laughs> Maybe, but nothing yet. So one can only hope. But
1: even if there isn't one, that in itself is obviously instructive and educational. the The overall structure, as you say, doesn't distinguish formally or even conceptually between SETI and Osiris. They become largely the same figure. But this does this does bring me to a topic that you discuss in the new Rameses, the Second book, which is this, Growing trend. Seti doesn't invent it, but he certainly um, promotes it of deifying a king within his lifetime. And the last time we saw something like that definitively happening is with Amunhotep III and Akhenaten. Again, is this part of Seti's hearkening back to older models of legitimation and attempts to increase his own legitimacy, or based on your understanding of the process as it develops, is this a new? Not a new phenomenon, but a new way of doing things for the pharaohs. Does this become common practice?
2: Well, this is actually something I'm I'm increasingly interested in looking at. I had I, already looked at the cult of the deified city. the first in my dissertation. I'm going to be speaking at the British Museum um, for a conference on Ramesside art in July, mm-hmm. and uh, looking at the at the evolution of the. The iconography and the ideology of divine kingship during the early 19th dynasty. With Ramses I, of course, he rules for such a short time. If we look at imagery of the king as a divine figure, as a cult icon, with uh, with Seti I, we see images of the deified Ramses I, where he basically looks like a king um, you know, being worshipped by his uh, by his son Sadi, after his death, or there's a few images where he's shown as Osiris, mm. uh, and the the markers of his divinity that you basically see is he's holding an Ankh sign, and sometimes you know, yeah, he, he sits with the crook. A scepter folded across his chest while he holds an onk sign. Otherwise, he's indistinguishable from, you know, if you will, a regular king. Mm. Uh, With Seti I, we also see this iconography when um, Ramses II worships his deified father and his grandfather after their deaths at places like the Gorna Temple. Um, But we also see with uh, Seti I increasingly images of the 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 deified king that are created during his lifetime Uh, we we saw like i was talking about uh with uh the the chapels of the deified king at abydos Mm. uh, both the the one of the seven chapels but also this inner osiris chapel where osiris is substituted for the deified king including uh Seti as a stand-in for Osiris, or even Seti as a composite deity that blends Osiris and uh, Os- uh, Amun's iconography. But here again, when you look at the uh, the uh, name of this deity, it is the names of Seti written in cartouches. But there's also something that begins with Seti, is when you see the name of the deified Seti uh, written without a cartouche. There is an image also in the Osiris suite that shows Sadi worshipping two gods. One of them is, is Osiris, and behind him is a god dressed like a king with the white crown, mm. but instead of having a cartouche, there are three hieroglyphs that spell out uh, Sadi's prenomen Menmot men Mot re, the great god. Uh, written without a cartouche, and writing um, a king's name without a cartouche is one way of conveying that he's a de- deified king, that he is actually a god. And of course, the epithet "Great God," like oh. other gods, is is further laying stress on his divinity. Mm-hmm. And so, and and of course, here he also is shown holding a um, a uh, ankh. Mm-hmm. There's also at, at the Gorna Temple of Seti I, uh, there's some rooms in the sides uh, of, the, of the cult chapels mm-hmm. uh, off the hypostyle Hall that we see uh, the cult images of the deified Seti I being uh, worshipped by by the the, the Yunmutef priest, by mm-hmm. um, Thoth and uh, Wet Wawit. Mm-hmm. Where the deified king holds a was scepter and an mm-hmm. ong, along with a royal staff, mm-hmm. uh, and, and he's again a, a deified cult figure. So here we see the transformation of Seti not into just a, you know, a, a deified king, but even as a, a, you know, sometimes as a kind of divine alter ego. And mm-hmm. I think this is something that we'll see ramsay's taking up and sort of running with it um, but it's already beginning to happen and i think it's not just a matter of said becoming a god in his own lifetime mm-hmm. it's just it's the, the 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 king's divine identity is related to but actually can be partly separate from his human identity the the king could almost have multiple identities, and his divine identity is related to, but actually can also partly be separated from mm. his human identity.
1: Interesting. So you mentioned the uh, you mentioned the Yuen motif priest, which asher uh, has identified as one of the common titles that the sons of Ramesses the Second take up during his long, long reign. In the Kurna temple, is there any evidence that this Yuen Motif priest is Ramesses, or is it just a an official.
2: Well, the, the unmetep priest is traditionally it's it's the idea that when uh, a, a man dies, that his son then uh, conducts the funeral rites, and of course also su- supports his widowed mother. And, and the unmetep means pillar of his uh, mother. Mm. Um, there is a in the cult of the deified king. There is a a priest who's called the Yunmutef priest, who is the nominal uh, priest of the deified cult, but a, a kind of generic Yunmutef priest can act mm-hmm. in, in imagery as, uh, as, as a sort of a generic stand-in figure. And so in imagery associated with the divine cult, we can see a Yunmutef priest who's not a real person, and it's sometimes not even clear whether he's almost supposed to be a, a deity or a demigod himself.
0: Mm.
2: But we also see as a stand-in for the officiant who's who's conducting the ritual for the deified king alongside the Univitev priest are two deities. Uh, one of them is Thoth. Uh, and the other one is the god Wetwawet, who's mm. this uh, this uh, a Anub- new uh, fe- uh, jackal-headed deity, uh, sometimes thought to be associated with Anubis, you know, Wet Wawit is the opener of the paths, the opener of the ways, the disorder, this guide of the dead who leads them into the underworld. Um, and sometimes also Horus. There's a scene from the hypostyle of, of, of Abydos that shows all three of them actually conducting rites for the deified Seti I, who is called Menmatre, the great god, but the iconography of Seti's figure looks like he's uh, uh, the incarnation of Osiris. Mm. And the three gods, uh, Wetwawet, Thoth, and Horus, attend to this sort of Osirian version of Menmatre, the great god. And so you see all this, these divine aspects of the cult of the divine, divine Seti the First. <laughs> Interesting.
1: So very. So it's a. It all comes together quite, quite cohesively in his monuments. There's a consistent trend to whether it's meant to be, sort of earthly or simply symbolic, or you know, greater spiritual. There is an increasing trend of Seti and Osiris becoming one and the same individual, as part of the overall divinity of the king, as it is expressed through ritual worship.
2: Yeah, and I think this is particularly true here at the mm. uh, What we see at the Gorna Temple is, is not quite the same thing for the most part. Mm. And, and again, if we had more monuments from elsewhere in Egypt or had Seti I uh, ruled for a longer time and built more temples, we might see different aspects of the deified Seti I as we did, uh, of course, during the long reign of Ramses II, where we have different aspects of the deified Ramses II, although uh, the main uh, unique aspects of the deified Ramses II were solar, Mm -hmm. as alter egos of the sun god, as well as some moon forms, lunar forms of of Ramses II. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we do have this sort of combination of Osiris and Amun, in one figure, the deified Seti at at, uh, at Abydos.
0: Hmm.
1: Interesting. So it's a very large and complicated phenomenon. So touching on, well, actually that does that does bring to mind uh, when Seti builds his his pelt temple at Kerna, uh which many people might call the mortuary temple. He adds a chapel for Ramesses the First within within is that a substitute for the fact that Ramesses could not build his own uh, memorial temple is the is there any evidence that the Kerna temple started life as the as the temple of Ramesses but then Seti inherited it and completed it or is it simply a part or at least as far as you're aware is it simply a part of this gathering trend of deifying and honoring the father
2: well i think it's it's partly the first and third on the one hand Yes, Ramses I did not rule for very long, and so there was a motive for uh, Sadi to include a suite of rooms in honor of, of his uh, father. On the other hand, if we look at the uh, at, at, at some royal cult temples of other kings who presumably did have time to build the, where, the, where the father or the ancestor had time to build their own cult temples, we do some see some kings adding a cult chapel for their uh, revered uh, predecessor. So for instance, at the temple of Queen Hatshepsut at Daryl Barri, mm. she, actually, she actually adds a cult uh, suite for uh, the memory of her father Tutmosis first Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because of course, her her claim to kingship is based on the idea that she's the legitimate successor of her father Tutmosis the first, and therefore political legitimation. She insists on honoring his memory. We even have the case of uh, Ramses the third at Medinet at Habu. Um, there's Ramses the thirteenth. My uh, my cat. <laughs> i'm uh, making his presence known i'm sorry hello uh, but uh, at 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 habu um, ramses iii dedicates a chapel to the the cult of his great ancestor and and paragon ramses ii Second, hmm. uh, who of course still had the Ramesseum, et etc mm-hmm. but uh, again for this kind of ideological desire to uh, to pay homage to a great ancestor so there were there were multiple reasons for why Ramses uh the the first had this suite of rooms at um at Gurna interesting so from
1: the from the um son of Ramses the first, we should now very briefly as we wrap up touch on the grandson of Ramses the first. in the later years of Seti the uh, first, in your book you touch on the the rise of Crown Prince Rameses. Uh, you touch on the rise of Crown Prince Ramesses, who starts to become a more prominent figure around approximately year 10 of Seti I. What is what is the evidence briefly for Ramesses, Prince Ramesses' rise in the administration or the public image of his father's regime? What do we know about that process?
2: Well, we have a handful of images, mostly uh, imagery, from the Temple of Setia de Bidos, as well as these uh, images from uh, Sadi's uh, Karnak War Monument, and uh, a couple of private monuments that show Ramses as Crown Prince attending his father in cultic and uh, at Karnak uh, uh, in military inscriptions. Uh, They mark him out as crown prince. They showed that he participated in military and cultic activities. Mm -hmm. And then we have these uh, inscriptions during uh, Ramsey's own reign, in which he gives these these sort of retrospective accounts or sort of little autobiographies of how Seti prepared him uh, to be uh, king uh, and uh, sort of gave him on-the-job training as a future pharaoh. Uh, One of them is a dedicatory inscription that he added on the porch of Seti's temple of Dibaitos that tells uh, how Seti had uh, gave him responsibility for building projects and and, uh, administrative projects, how uh, he had supplied him with a he actually calls a female household and selected uh wives for him and how he began to produce children etc there's another inscription from a, when he's uh setting up a well for a gold mining operation in nubia and the courtiers sing his praises and say that every everything uh every every kind of uh, administrative business and uh project was under his supervision that he was a commander the army, even at the tender age of 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And and so it it, it makes clear that Ramses had this kind of on-the-job training um, from his youth, although one can suspect there may have been certain amounts of exaggeration. Was he really a general of the army at the age of 10? Possibly, Mm -hmm. although one suspects there was a certain amount of symbolism there. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it does seem clear that Ramses did receive extensive training and was introduced to the uh, elite as their future monarch, and said he took pains to make sure that not only was his son prepared, but that the elite of Egypt was prepared to accept him as their future pharaoh. And there is uh, was a remarkable inscription that was discovered at uh, near Aswan on the island, a uh, small island near Elephantini that records uh, how um, Ramses held uh, a title, uh, the great overseer of the army for the monuments of of the king, that goes hand in hand with a building inscription of Seti himself that tells us uh, how Seti had commissioned giant obelisks and statues in the ninth year of his reign, which is just about a year or so before his death. Uh, And that inscription of Seti also tells us that when Seti commissioned these large obelisks and statues, that, quote, the king's eldest son was ahead of the officials doing what was beneficial for his majesty. And, Mm -hmm. of course, that unnamed king's son was none other than Ramses. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's clear that Ramses was being promoted as the heir apparent, and Mm then he was well prepared to take over. In fact, one wonders if there was ever another crown prince w- who was so well prepared to take his father's. <laughs> that is
1: a very thorough summary. Thank you. Yes, okay, so that brings me to the end of all of my questions, but we can now touch on the foreign wars. Um, yep. So just to clarify, you're, you're currently working on a study of SETI's wars, is that correct?
2: Oh Well, eventually I want to write a book on right. SETI. That mm-hmm. would include. In fact, I had actually written a, an extensive section. My 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 chapter on SETI mm-hmm. was uh, was actually originally more than twice as long as what actually made it into the book. Mm-hmm. And my editor imposed uh, draconian cuts because they were worried that I didn't get around to actually getting there. And I will say this: I'm actually writing a chapter. Um, for a book that Tony Spallinger is putting together on uh, on warfare in ancient Egypt, so I'm hoping to uh, to recycle a lot of what I'd written about uh, the Seti Wars for this
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, this chapter, and it, and part of it is a, a focus on the ideological aspects of mm-hmm. the Seti War Monument and Seti's wars,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and what interests me both in terms of the War Monument itself. And particularly for Seti's first campaign, is that, and this is a major theme of this Ramsey's book, is that the Egyptian ideological worldview uh, just permeates all of the, the sources. The, these monumental inscriptions and these beautiful art, uh, you know, these, uh, these uh, stunning war reliefs are suffused with an ideological perspective. Um, we can say that it distorts the facts, that it, you know, that it can deceive us. I don't think they're trying to pull the wool over our eyes. I don't mm. think Ramses or Seti are trying to lie to us. Mm. But on the other hand, they weren't trying to record history or tell mm. us the facts. These this imagery served an ideological purpose, to glorify mm-hmm. the king, to convey the essence of the Egyptian ideology, that the king was the champion of mod, of of universal order. That foreign foreign peoples were the the embodiment of chaos that had to be defeated and suppressed, and that was much more uh, important than the mundane details of historical reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, when you look at the imagery, we we you know that shows the king as a superhuman figure and doing some rather you know there, there's this one scene of Seti in his chariot. And he's standing there, of course, he's a giant figure, you know, with these tiny little enemies, you don't take that seriously. He's the only Egyptian, there's no other members of the Egyptian forces uh, alongside him, single-handedly defeating these sort of mini, 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 uh, tiny little enemies uh, and he's riding in his chariot. He has one leg hiked up over the front of the cab, with, uh, bent over with one leg you know, balanced on the pole of the chariot between the two horses. He's leaning over with one hand upraised, holding his, his Simakar sword. And with his bow in the other hand, he's looped it ar- on, around the neck of this Libyan chieftain as if he's about to strangle him. Really, he's about to cut the guy's head off as he speeds past him in his chariot. Mm. Meanwhile, he has the reins of his chariot horses tied around his waist.
0: Mm.
2: It's a beautiful image. It's vivid. It's exciting. It's elegant. But it's completely unbelievable. We can't take this seriously, although it's amazing how many Egyptologists do. Mm. Again, we can't. It's, they weren't trying to lie to us. We're not supposed to believe it in terms of a literal sense. It's all about ideology. And if you take it from that perspective, it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. But don't believe it in a literal sense. Mm -hmm. And everything about these war scenes are are, are all part of that. Mm -hmm. So with the SETI battle scenes, scholars have, have spilled gallons of ink trying to decide uh, what order do they read, and you know how many campaigns they were? We might be able to deduce how many military campaigns SETI he uh, led, but trying to use the battle scenes to figure that out hmm. is a rather hazardous endeavor. Hmm. If you look at the battle scenes, we have two wings, the, the east and west side, which were divided up into uh, six total levels of scenes, three on the east, three on the west. Each uh, register consists of a sequence of scenes. They're almost like cartoon scripts. They're, they're complete narratives. You have scenes that show the king fighting in foreign lands. You have the scene collecting enemy uh, prisoners. You have him marching them back to Egypt. And finally, closest to the central doorway, you have him presenting enemy prisoners and the spoils of war to the gods at Karnak. If you took them totally literally, you would actually conclude that there were six separate campaigns. Two of those on the east side almost certainly refer to the campaigns of his first regnal year. Mm. Yet if you take those two, which refer to the first campaign in Canaan and Lebanon and Sinai, you would have to say that those were two separate campaigns, mm. but they're not. But it just shows you that a literal interpretation of this art is really tricky. Mm. Mm. But again, it's, it's not a historical document. We're using it to try to deduce to historical facts, mm-hmm. and it does have historical information to tell us, mm. but that's not its purpose. That's not why SETI made it. Mm. So we have to be really cautious in using it. And we have, and it's and this ideology is not just a bunch of mumbo jumbo that we have to sort of get past so we can figure out what the real historical information. Mm. The ideology, the worldview, the iconography, and the rhetoric of the inscriptions is actually worth studying in its own. Mm. It's it's really interesting, actually. Mm. It's actually quite wonderful. Mm-hmm. but too often historians just think oh that's just the usual nonsense that we have to get mm-hmm. past so mm-hmm. we can figure out what really happened mm.
1: so are you so you're interested in the in the ideology as its own phenomenon essentially as part and parcel of why they're making these particular images
2: yes i mean don't get me wrong i still want to know what really happened and mm-hmm. why it happened But from my view, the ideology is worthwhile studying for uh, its own sake, partly because it it helps us understand the Egyptian mindset. Mm. But even as a historian who ultimately does want to know what happened and why it happened, sometimes the ideology can actually help us understand why things happened, and it can help us sort out. What is ideology from what did happen? I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. In the first year of his reign, Seti led this campaign that went across North Sinai and seems to have gone into Canaan as far north as into Lebanon. And the battle scenes on the east side that are preserved show... A number of episodes that 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 are battles mm-hmm. against the Shasu and one against a city called Yenomam There's a couple of stele from a place called Bashan in what's now Israel that refer to attacks on a, a number of small cities, Beshan, Yenuam, and um, Hamath, that the king's armies defeated in the space of a day, according to SETI. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's, there's, there's only a couple of scenes of actual fighting, but there's a couple of other scenes that show the peaceful submission of the Canaanite and Lebanese uh, chiefs who bowed down in homage. The, the chiefs of Lebanon even cut down cedarwood trees, their most valuable commodity, and offered it up to Sedi for free. And even the chiefs themselves cut it down, who've never done a Days work themselves (laughs) are forced to humiliate themselves and cut down these trees to give it away to Seti. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, where's the fighting? There's not a lot of fighting in this first year campaign, according to the battle scene. Mm. What do we do to explain this? Well, I suspect that much of Seti's first year campaign was not so much uh, essentially a series of military conquests and. Earlier, Egyptologists believed that after the Amarna period, that the, the empire had supposedly been lost because mm. Akhenaten was asleep at the switch, or he was focused on religion, and the empire went down the tubes and that Seti had reconquered it. Mm. We now know that's not really what was going on. Mm. Um, but So the, there wasn't a lot to reconquer. Sedi, in the first year of his reign, who wanted to demonstrate his military credentials, And who was itching for a fight,
0: Mm.
2: he went on campaign. The word for campaign, Wediat in Egyptian, actually means marching around. (laughs) And so, what I like to call what Seti was up to was chariot diplomacy. Mm. Now, he was looking for a fight, whoever was foolish enough to give it to him. Mm. He beat up on the Shasu Bedouin who occupied Sinai. And it was probably something along the lines of a series of drive-by shootings. And you know, <laughs> um, he fought these guys in uh, central Canaan who had been squabbling amongst themselves, and he basically just went in and cracked heads. Mm-hmm. But other places, the local vassals were wise enough not to tangle with him, and therefore they just uh, paid homage to him, and he submit he he received their submission. But even just marching around in his chariots uh, with his army was enough to basically demonstrate his military credentials. And so that much of his campaign was more, again, sort of the ancient equivalent of gunboat diplomacy, or again, I like to call it chariot diplomacy, mm-hmm. uh, with relatively little fighting. It was not some kind of ancient Reconquista mm-hmm. with Seti basically reconquering all of uh, of Canaan and uh, and Lebanon that had supposedly been lost,
0: hmm.
2: uh, you know, during the Amarna period. Hmm. Certainly, I mean, <clears throat>
1: we now have increasing evidence of warfare under the later reign of Akhenaten and Tutankhamun. And then, you know, Horemheb is able to go as far north as Carchemish. He's not doing that if the entire country is hostile to him. You need a safe yeah. space to launch that kind of attack.
2: Well, yeah, and, and there's no question that the Egyptians had lost uh, mm-hmm. their hold on the northernmost provinces in, in, in Amuru and Kadesh mm-hmm. to the Hittites. Uh, and there are even some Hittiteologists nowadays that are saying that the Egyptians really never had uh, control over Amaru and Kadesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of Canaan and even Lebanon, those really never had slipped from their grasp. Mm -hmm. Um, and especially Canaan, there was no question that those were uh, safely under the Pharaoh's thumb all Mm -hmm. throughout the late 18th dynasty. So there was nothing for Seti to reconquer there. Now, it is interesting that like his predecessors in the late 18th dynasty, Seti was hell-bent on taking or retaking Amru and Kadesh, unlike most of his uh, predecessors, and unlike Ramses II, uh, Seti he uh, gained some temporary uh, uh, victories. And in fact, he did take Kadesh. And although his battle scene from Karnak that shows the conquest of Kadesh is a typical battle scene you could say well he was making it up mm-hmm. but we did find uh at the site of kadesh a, a battered victory stela of seti the first which suggests that he did manage to take the citadel mm-hmm. and, and so it seems fairly safe to conclude that Seti had conquered the place although in the end uh he couldn't hold on to it mm-hmm. and so within a fairly short period of time whether it was months or, or, or a few years uh it reverted to the Hittite control and therefore Ramses a few years later in the fifth year of his reign had to march back once again mm. and make one last un- ultimately unsuccessful bid to once again try to wrest K- uh, Kadesh from um the Hittite control mm.
1: and it's interesting uh, you with your description of uh SETI's chariot diplomacy and just thinking in terms of his his repeated and conscious hearkening back to uh, glorious predecessors, there are aspects of it which are very similar to the Megiddo campaign of Thutmose III, which is, I think, on the Beth Shan stele. there's implications that local rulers had risen up in rebellion, perhaps testing the new pharaoh's resolve. But with his speed and um, Ma'at's blessing, he's able to overcome them rapidly. Bearing in mind the ideological aspects of all of these texts should we perhaps see some of this imagery as hearkening back to figures like Tutmos? you know he's he's the swift and decisive pharaoh who achieves great victory
2: yes very much um and there's a couple of things to unpack there on the one hand um uh, you know what I call chariot diplomacy of, of his campaign of, of of um of year one which may also be echoed in Ramsey's first ca- year, can- uh, first campaign of victory, which actually happens in his fourth year, uh, which is the right before his, his Kadesh campaign, and perhaps also Mernatah's Canaanite campaign recorded at Karnak, uh, may be cases of these sort of military tours. Uh, and they actually perhaps correspond to some of Thutmose III's later campaigns. Which, uh, in his study of uh, Tutmosis III's campaigns, Donald Redford uh, uses this term for some of the medieval campaigns called chevauchées or horse campaigns or marchabouts, where they where basically they, it was just you know sort of almost like you know ancient medie- medieval you know motorcycle gangs riding around and and uh, you know raising hell, but uh, that. That that some of these campaigns were really just marchabouts, mm. um, and you know, just uh, overwhelming force going around, and you know, seeking homage, and uh, you know, picking on weak uh, states that offered some resistance. Now, the other thing is interesting: this idea of rebellion, because we hear about it so often, and uh, one of the things you see here, and regardless of whether you we you or I would would say that some of these uh, these enemies were truly rebelling against Egyptian interests. Hmm. From an ideological standpoint, any real or perceived opposition to Egypt's uh, interests, or even when the Egyptians simply were looking for a fight, they would always cast opposition to Pharaoh's rule. As, as as a rebellion mm. and even independent states who were clearly outside of the Pharaoh's power, such as the Hittites or Mitanni in the 18th dynasty, would be cast as rebels. And this was an ideological conceit. In fact, uh, the Italian scholar Mario Liverani, who has studied all of the ancient Near Eastern civilization, sees the same theme among the Hittites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, Mitanni, that opposition to the king, whether whoever the king is, who theoretically is the ruler of the entire world, is automatically rebellion. So if the pharaoh is theoretically the ruler of the entire world, any kingdom, no matter how great or small, that opposes him, they are automatically a rebel. And so we always hear the Hittite king is a rebel. Mitanni king is a rebel, as well as some petty king who's a, who clearly is a vassal is also a rebel. Interesting. It's
1: one of those examples where history does not seem to change that much in terms of how states
2: interact when they are interested in a fight. But it's also an example of how understanding the ideology mm. also helps us to parse what how we should understand these documents in terms of history. Because I also think that with getting back to SETI's first campaign, when he gets out there on his first campaign, he has to fulfill his ideological role
0: mm.
2: of suppressing uh, chaos, of chastising rebellion and fulfilling his his military, you know, you know, getting his military credentials, and he's itching for a fight. Mm. He's looking for trouble. He's looking yep. for somebody to beat up for all those things he's this is about an ideological exercise mm. and so the whole motive for the first campaign is to fulfill his ideological role and that's mm. driving him as it were to war and even mm. ginning up war when it isn't otherwise necessary
1: mm. Mm. and uh, i suppose that's best encapsulated in the start of the year 1 Campaign text where Seti supposedly receives news of the rebellion, and it takes a few lines to describe how excited and overjoyed he is at the prospect of bloodshed and going forth.
2: Well, at first he's he's outraged that how mm-hmm. dare they rebel against the you know the, my Majesty, you know, and then he's then he has this bloodlust, you know, and then he's basically I'm just going to like destroy them. Mm-hmm. And, but again, it's it's a familiar trope, this this mm-hmm. idea that somebody comes to report, you know, that these foreigners are rebellion. And but it, it, again, it, it's a trope. It's it's part of the ideological narrative. It's a well-worn theme. Mm-hmm. And said, he, you know, it, it's part of the script. Mm-hmm. and and again these were just some bedouin they probably were always causing problems from an egyptian perspective mm. but again it's it's blown up into this big deal and the pharaoh goes off and bass his head
0: you know
1: mm-hmm. very good so putting that into the wider context of what you've said about city and sort of wrapping this all up together into a a cohesive whole if that's possible it seems very much like from the from the grander historiographical perspective, Seti takes the classic features of his predecessors, especially the more notable great rulers who he sometimes consciously models himself on. He takes those traditional, traditional features, adds his own layer of sometimes novel or unique imagery and interpretation, but essentially brings it into a cohesive whole where he becomes, if you will, the ultimate pharaoh that has ever existed and ever will exist. Would that be a fair summation of what of what Seti, by the end of his reign, is trying to present himself
2: as? Yes, of course, up until Ramses II. <laughs> but yes, I think so. And I would say, too, that, um, you know, often he's seen as one of the greatest pharaohs, obviously, again. Uh, and, of course, looking back, uh, that... Uh, I say about Ramses II that he was a hard act to proceed. So <laughs> Seti is, is 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 obviously dwelling in the shadow that is cast backwards by his son. Mm. Um, but um, to the extent that Seti is one of the greatest pharaohs, so we shouldn't view Seti as having reconquered the empire that Akhenaten supposedly had lost. It's not because he was restoring the temples that had been uh, completely destroyed and neglected since the death of Akhenaten mm. uh you know all these things but because uh, you know yes he was an innovative fair. yes he had undertook this great building project but it's also because he actually very much like ramses was actually one of the masters of, of pr i mean he, he you know he, he did all these things, but he also he he promoted himself. He he also created this spectacular image of kingship. Mm. Uh, again, that that Ramses then amplified to the nth degree, mm. and 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 he set this standard uh, for uh, kingship that obviously Ramses emulated and uh, expanded on. Uh, and and again, one could only imagine had Seti. Uh, ruled for another 10 or 20 years Mm. whether we would be talking about Seti the Great. Mm. Uh, And if Seti had just managed to live, even for a few more years, some of the monuments that Ramses was famous for, such as the facade of Luxor Temple with those giant obelisks and the four great seated colossi and the Pylon Gateway that I believe Seti had commissioned and uh, they would have been completed in his name. The entire hypostyle hall would have been completely decorated uh, throughout with these beautiful bas-reliefs uh, of Seti I uh, with, with no inscriptions of Ramses II unless uh, Ramses had shown to re-inscribe them. And then it would have been obvious that Ramses had never decorated any of it originally himself. Uh, the entire city, the Temple of Deities, again would have been completely decorated by Seti. Who knows what other monuments he would have built? Mm. A- and again, this would have changed the complexion. So there's there's this sense of what might have been, mm. had Seti even lived two or three or five, to say nothing of ten or twenty years mm. more.
1: Excellent. So, if we were to summarize that in a soundbite, could we perhaps say that? Seti ran so that Ramesses could sprint.
2: Yes. <laughs> and he he's almost like some of these other fathers of mm. great kings, one thinks of Philip of Macedon to Alexander the mm. Great, Julius Caesar to Augustus, uh, uh Sneferu to uh Khufu. Um mm you know, the the, the predecessors of, of great kings that were in some ways great themselves, but were then overshadowed by their, their progeny. Very good. So, Professor
1: Brand, that brings me to the end of all of my questions and more about uh, City the First. It has been a marathon of a conversation. Thank you for oh. your energy and enthusiasm. I hope I have not uh, taken too much time from you.
2: Oh, no, not at all.
1: I hope you've enjoyed discussing this king, even though we are currently building to Ramesses Second, the ultimate pharaoh, if you will.
2: Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it.
1: And we will see you very soon to discuss uh, Ramesses Second and to speak more about your book. So I guess all I can say is thank you very much for your time, and I hope the next uh, few weeks until I speak to you again are good weather and good blessings upon you. Looking forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you very much. I'll speak soon. That brings us to the end of this interview with Professor Peter Brandt. But there will be more in the future, as we begin to explore the reign of Ramesses II, to which Peter has devoted a spectacular amount of time and writing. If you are interested in his books, you can find links to them in the episode description. The monuments of Seti I and Ramesses II, Egypt's ultimate pharaoh, are both valuable explorations of this political and historical period. I highly recommend them. That's all from me. I'll see you soon, as we return to our regularly scheduled programming. Thanks for listening, and may Osiris of Abydos and Seti I, who is Osiris, bless you and yours. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to Conflicted, a podcast that tells stories of the Islamic past and present to help you make sense of the world today. Hosted by me, Thomas Small, author and filmmaker, and my good friend, Eamon Dean, an ex-Al Qaeda jihadi turned MI6 spy, Conflicted is prepping its fifth season, which is coming to you very soon. And in the meantime, you can sign up to our Conflicted community.
0: Subscribe to Conflicted wherever you get your podcasts.